0: Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of We Need to Talk. My guest today is one of the most fascinating guests I have had on the show. She is a lawyer by day and one of TikTok's most popular chefs of all time. Her talent of creating unique and visually stimulating videos, cooking vegan versions of classic Korean dishes, while talking about justice, life, love, hardship, success, and family, have helped her amass over 2 million followers on TikTok. Today we're going to be talking all about her culture, her relationship with food, why veganism, and her Upcoming cookbook, The Korean Vegan. Joanne Molinaro, thank you for being on the show today.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here.
0: Of course. You know, I definitely went down the rabbit hole of watching all of your videos and I was just mesmerized by what you create and just an awe of the food. But I was also really moved by a lot of the stories and the life lessons that you share with your followers. And I know that you posted one fairly recently saying that your last meal before going vegan was eating a fried chicken sandwich. And I've actually been vegan for 17 years and uh, yeah, I don't remember the last meal meal that I had but I remember when I did officially cut everything out I know eggs was the last thing for me to to give up and it felt really good when I made the shift so going back to when you made that decision why was veganism the right shift for you
1: You know, that's a really good question. And uh, I think it depends on what you mean by right. You know, like there's the kind of moral, ethical component of that word. And there's also just the practical component of that word. Um, And I think obviously both of those things played a part in my decision. I think starting from the practical side of things, I really just did it to stay with my boyfriend at the time. He, He was going vegan and it became pretty clear that if I... I didn't go vegan, it would put a strain in our relationship that I didn't think it could handle at that point. We were still very new to our courtship. And, you know, some people are kind of cool with having totally different ways of eating. But I could tell based upon our personalities that that just wouldn't work for us. (laughs) So practically, I was like, okay, well, I could be stubborn, and just be like, no, I don't want to go vegan with you. You are on your own um, and and see where that takes us. Or I could just be like, who cares? Like, is it that big of a deal for you? Um, You know, I could have just been like, hey, I'm stubborn and I'm not gonna do it, so too bad you're on your own. Um, But I decided it's not that big of a deal. And worse comes to worse, if I hate it, I can just go back to eating what I ate before. I think once I tried it and did it for a couple of weeks, I realized number one, it wasn't nearly as hard as I expected. And number two, all of a sudden, the ethical appeals to that decision started to become much more important to me. And it was just hard for me to think about ever eating meat again, because I was like, I know now what happens to these animals to make it onto my plate. And I just can't bring myself to be part of that anymore.
0: Yeah, You know, it's interesting. And I, that's, I talk about the phrase ignorance is bliss very often, especially in our society, because it is kind of one of those situations like once you know, you have a responsibility to do better. And that kind of goes across anything when it comes to like advocacy, you know? So when, when I became vegan, I, I did it mostly for health reasons. And also I was just like, uh, I'm, I just want you know, I just want to eat better. Right. But then when you learn about what happens, happens in the food industry you're like there's absolutely no way I can go back to that there's just no way so I think a lot of people don't want to know because they know that they will have a responsibility to stay with veganism once they actually know what goes into food
1: I think you're totally right and I also think that the word no is so important because I think we all sort of intellectually know yeah like this isn't Clearly, animals right. are being killed <laughs> <Right, right. laughs> so that I can eat my burger right. uh, or have my bacon. I think we all know at a surface level, but I think a lot of times going plant-based, you know, and I know, you know, plant-based vegan, there is a distinction. But deciding to adopt a plant-based diet opens you up to really knowing and to really understanding what all goes into it on a much more visceral level, which is what, in some cases, facilitates that shift, as you mentioned at the very beginning.
0: Absolutely. And I've always been a foodie you know, and I love watching like the Food Network, for example, like I I would choose the Food Network over a TV show any day. (laughs) And my husband's like, I can't watch another episode of Chopped. But I get so excited about it. And that's one of the things I love to do is figuring out how to veganize things, you know, my favorite foods. And I know you also posted another video where people ask like, why would you know, a vegan want to eat something that tastes like chicken when you're a vegan? And for me, it was always we still like the taste of that. We just know ethics that it's not okay. So for you, with what you're doing, you're bringing, you know, veganizing Korean classic dishes. How have you managed to stay true to your culture while also experimenting with vegan dishes?
1: I think that there's a lot of appropriate discussion right now about what it means to preserve and respect traditional cuisine. I think that the way people thought of that maybe 10 years ago, is very different from the way people are talking about it right now. And I think that um, the important thing for me, functionally speaking, I just wanted to make food that I enjoy eating. And that happens to be Korean food. That's the food I grew up eating. So, you know, in order to create the dishes that I enjoy, I had to go back to some of these traditional recipes and really understand what the flavors are, how to uh, extract those flavors silken tofu stew is one of my favorite dishes of all time it's the first dish that my mom ever taught me to make this is before Mm -hmm. I went vegan and so the idea was well how do I recreate this dish so there's minimal impact to the flavor that I remembered eating when I was little um, while making it vegan yeah and Oftentimes, the answer is simple. Just don't include the meat. Um, many of my favorite dishes really didn't depend upon the flavor of meat or seafood in order to make it something that I enjoyed. Mm. And so it really became easy to do that. But I think the key to, again, making sure that you are paying due respect mm-hmm. to the traditional cuisines is sometimes, like you said, watching the Food Network or watching the original recipe that isn't vegan, yeah. familiarizing yourself with what is it that makes that dish that dish, and then re-engineering that in a veganized way, as opposed to simply saying, well, I want to eat a a vegan sundubu jjigae, so I'm going to Google vegan sundubu jjigae. Well, then you might be missing out on something.
0: Ah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, it's apparent that food clearly played a huge part in your life growing up. You know, you talked about that's the first dish that your mom taught you how to make. So was it always a passion that you had, or do you think it was something that you grew into?
1: No, it was never a passion for me. <laughs> I mean, like you, I am a foodie, so I grew up watching the Food Network. I, I found it oddly therapeutic and comforting because it's like, well, there isn't a great deal of tension in these shows. It's like, you know, it's not like world peace rests upon the shoulders of this chopped, con- you know, contestant. So it was, like, very fun for me to watch that and rather diverting. But I was never, like, a cook or anything like that. And once again, this is a little bit embarrassing, but the only reason I really got into cooking was to impress my boyfriend I was like oh he really likes to eat
0: and we've all made those decisions in our life
1: exactly (laughs) I know he likes chocolate cake risotto and pasta so um, you know that's kind of the extent of my cooking prior to going vegan Mm -hmm. I was just getting into baking a little bit more right before I went vegan only because my then boyfriend now husband's father was very into baking and I wanted to impress him as much as I wanted to impress his son so it was really kind of in that vein very fun nothing really like you know intense um but obviously that changed when I went vegan again because there really was no other choice for me
0: yeah is there something specific to Korean culture that you really enjoy sharing with your audience
1: Mm, that's a really good question well I love I love sharing the food mm-hmm. uh, you know I, I love sharing all the flavors that I grew up eating um, you know and I really want people to understand that Korean food is so much more than Korean barbecue or (laughs) (laughs) pop. There's more to it than that. Um, Well, that's
0: also because it's been Americanized, you know.
1: (laughs) You're totally right, because it has been Americanized and westernized, and I get that. I think that's pretty amazing. I think that's awesome that, you know, people who are otherwise unfamiliar with Korean cuisine are finding their path to Korean food through Mm -hmm. Korean barbecue or I think that's great but there's just so much more I also like to share as much as I can and with the authority that I have available to me which isn't a lot um, I like to share some about Korea's history and who you know what Korea is as a country I think that we hear a lot about North Korea in the news uh, these days and, you know, in the past decade we have. But I think that a lot of people are still very unfamiliar with the actual history of mm-hmm. the two Koreas. And, you know, what does that say about our opinions on, you know, the, the geopolitical ramifications of their separation and, um, And how do we humanize that story so that it leaps out of the news and into your hearts in a way that's meaningful? So that's also something that I try to share in a very small way. And again, I always tell people, you know, I think people always associate the Korean vegan with food, and that's understandable. But for me, food is just a vehicle to share broader messages. Yeah.
0: And you talk about your family a lot, which I really appreciate. And you have a recipe. I'm lucky enough i got to get an advanced copy of your cookbook and there's a recipe in there for a chocolate sweet potato cake and i would love for you to share the story behind that
1: yeah so the chocolate sweet potato cake is really um meant to combine two of my favorite stories of my mother uh the first story is a very like well-worn story from my mom. You know, she has told this story to us so many times, but and it's funny because she's always like laughing when she tells me the <laughs> story, which I find a little macabre. Um, but you know, my mother always says, "Oh yeah, your your grandparents almost killed me when I was a baby," and I'm like, what You're is like, mom?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like what? Um, and so, my mother was born in Onjin, which is a small village in kind of on the border of North Korea and South Korea of course you know when she was born it wasn't North Korea at the time um, she was um, or no perhaps it was at the time I mean it's uh, the history is a little fuzzy um, but it was definitely before the Korean War she was born before the Korean War and uh, the Battle of Ongjin is what started, and many historians view the Korean War, and she lived there. So when the attack happened, my grandparents sort of scooped up their daughters, my mom and her older sister, and they were told to evacuate the village. And so Mm -hmm. they fled, um, and they were told to go to the Yellow Sea. And so that's where they started heading. It took about two weeks for my grandparents and my mom and her sister to get to the Yellow Sea. And by that time, my mother, who was only one year old, was starving to death. They didn't have food with them. I mean, they were afraid for their lives. They didn't have time to, like, pack a, you know, suitcase full of rice and seaweed. You know, it's not that. So they got to the Yellow Sea and there was a U.S. Navy ship waiting for them. And the ship was supposedly going to take them to South Korea. But, you know, in all the chaos and, of course, with the language barrier, my grandparents had no idea what was happening. And they didn't know whether they would make it to South Korea or not. All they knew was they had a baby who was dying in their arms and was in a great deal of agony from the lack Mm -hmm. of food. So my grandparents ultimately concluded that perhaps the best thing for my mother was a mercy killing and to drown her in the sea. This was not an easy decision. Like, I say that very glibly, but it was a horrible decision. My grandmother was crying and crying and looking for any other solution, but... They didn't feel they had any other choice. Yeah. And people always ask, why didn't they just ask for food from the you know, American soldiers who were on the ship? And it's so easy to say things like that. But when, when you're, you're
0: in not that, in that situation,
1: yeah, when you're in that situation, yeah. you don't speak the language. You have no idea. It's yeah. literally been walking for two weeks with no food and your baby's crying and you don't know what's going to happen in the next five minutes let alone the next hour or the next day you know again I'm not saying that I fully understand how they came to this conclusion but I do know that I'm in no position to try and you know judge them for it so they ultimately climbed up to the uppermost deck of the ship with the intention of slipping my mother overboard Mm. and drowning her And, you know, my mom's crying and screaming, and in the commotion, a couple of American GIs, they noticed them, and they started walking over to my grandparents, and, you know, they were probably asking what's going on, but of course, my grandparents couldn't speak English and had no idea, but... You know, With the body language, and I think my mom's rather frail form probably did a lot of the talking, the American GI, one of them, reached into his pocket and hands over a chocolate bar. Mm-hmm. And my mom says that that chocolate bar saved her life. It's why she was able to survive the trip, probably. And also, more importantly, it's why my grandparents felt that they maybe didn't have to do what they thought they did. And so that's the chocolate part. Once they got to South Korea, they were refugees in this very small village in the south of southern South Korea, south of South Korea. But they were refugees. They had no homes. They had nothing. They literally had nothing. And they were knocking on doors, begging for food. And my mom told me that when she was little, you know, this is even when, she, you know, by that time she was only one year old, but all throughout kind of her toddler through, I would say, elementary school age, they almost never had enough food. I mean, she was always hungry. And so what she would do is in the village they were refugees in, at nighttime after the villagers had already plowed through their fields and pulled all the sweet potatoes out of the ground she would go back at night to see if anyone may have left a couple that they didn't notice or maybe left them behind because they were too rotten to you know take and my mom would find those and she would just eat them raw you know because she was so hungry and she said I remember her telling me she's like they were like gold to her, finding gold in the dirt, and how much she loved that. So I came up with the chocolate sweet potato cake, really as an homage to my mother's story with the Hershey bar that was given to her by the American GI and the sweet potatoes that she um, still eats to this day because they remind her of those moments when she struck gold.
0: Wow, what a story! That is so moving. (laughs) <laughs> That's so moving, and I'm sure you grew up just from probably from both of your parents being blessed with stories like that that probably changed your perspective as a whole.
1: So here's the thing, Melinda I will confess, I was the typical American brat <laughs> growing up. I really, we like, all
0: were that were born in
1: America. <laughs> I didn't. I was not interested in her stories. Like oh. I was stories, I was, you know, I'm American, I wear Levi's jeans and Doc Martens, I (laughs) don't care about your stories about Korea for, I would say, the first half of my life. You know, my parents tried, uh, you know, I know my dad tried often to sort of sit me down and say, you need to understand your history and I'm like, boring, no thanks. And it wasn't until college, of course, when I no longer had Korean food at my disposal. I didn't have my parents there every waking moment. My grandma you know, my grandmothers and, you know, my money uh, which is my father's mother, had already passed away when I started to miss these things. And that's when I started being interested in Korean food, in our story, in Korean culture, in mm-hmm. Korean diaspora. These were things that I had taken for granted. So as much as I would say that, like, would like to say that these stories, you know, influenced me Even in my childhood, I think they did so only in the most indirect way. It wasn't until college and thereafter that I really started appreciating them for what they were.
0: And I think that that's just human nature in general. You know, you don't realize the things that your parents even tell you, not even just sharing stories about your culture, but like life lessons. You're like, yeah, whatever, mom, dad, like, let me go do this. But when you get older, you're like, oh, I totally know what they were talking about and I understand that. And I was gonna ask, is there any specific lessons that you maybe kind of brushed off in your childhood, but as you got older, it kind of clicked for you. Like I now get what my mom or my dad was talking about.
1: My parents both tried very hard to instill a deep respect for our ancestors Mm. and for Korean tradition. And I didn't want anything to do with it. I, again, was so proud of being American, you know, and uh, true blue, red, white, and blue American. And I viewed the Korean side to me as largely incidental, like, Mm -hmm. oh, that's just, you know, a happenstance of my DNA and genes, nothing more. And... Obviously, that has changed rather dramatically um, over the past two decades. And it's not just having a, a deeper awareness of my identity and who I am as a result of being Korean American, not just American, but also having sort of great love for my parents and for my grandparents, and a real respect for how much they sacrificed for me and my brother. Mm -hmm. And also drawing strength from it in many, many ways, knowing that in my blood, I have my mother's blood, I have my grandmother's blood, I have my, you know, father's blood. Those things give me a great deal of reassurance and confidence when I feel unsure of myself.
0: Yeah, that's beautiful. You know, specifically in the black culture, you know, food is also a big thing, you know. We have family gatherings, cookouts, all all of that and I, I could spend probably an hour saying all the um, different types of foods that show up at our gatherings, but I would love for you to paint the picture of what maybe a traditional Korean gathering with food is like, like a Korean dinner. What is that like for you?
1: So, it's very family style. Like for Korean cuisine, like family style is redundant. Like every meal is family style. There's no <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) There's no such thing as, like, any other style of eating. Like, everything is family style. Um, So there's no real, like, oh, I'm going to order my own entree. It's like, no, everything is shared all the time. Right. And that's my favorite way of eating, which is why I always found it so difficult to eat the American way, which is like you order one thing, and I'm like, "What are you talking about? Right. I want my plate to have 15 things on them. Like that, right. that's the best way to eat. You get all the different flavors. I want to try everything. I don't want to have just like one thing or with the side. Um, so if you go to a Korean restaurant, which I'm sure you've been to, you order your quote entree, and then you get like 15 side dishes. That yeah. in, right? <laughs> and that and that's supposed to be shared by the table. And that's really how Korean people. Eat in terms of you know the kinds of dishes that you'll see um, you know at a Korean table. Um, obviously, that's changed a lot for us since mm-hmm. we've gotten vegan. But you know, I was just on the phone with my mom because we're planning our dinner with the family, and you know she's like, well, "What am I gonna make? What am I gonna make?" And I'm like, "Just make the same stuff you always make. You know, <laughs> you make the puchinge, which is like you know Korean pancakes. Make the japchae which is you know the Korean stir fried noodles, which are so good and you know i'm gonna bring you know broccoli salad which isn't like a traditional korean dish but of the salads the broccoli salad is the like is one of the few salads that i could maybe call like korean maybe like korean american a little bit um and uh you know we she was wondering well should we you know Put some carne on the grill. Carne is marinated short ribs. And I was like, no, you don't need carne. <laughs> Who wants to stand at a grill all day? No, uh, so, um, you know those are the kinds of foods. I mean, it's usually filled with lots of different kinds of vegetables. Like my mom will usually braise some potatoes, um, have some eggplant. Uh, well, you know, my my aunt will make these delicious like. Um, uh, tofu pancakes which are really really good filled with like scallions and mushrooms oh, and um, peppers <laughs> exactly and then they'll usually be a plate full of just fresh veggies like perilla leaves and you know uh, korean peppers uh, with a little bit of samjang which is like a very intensely flavored um, fermented soybean paste um, and things like that so in summertime that's kind of the way the table would look and uh, very excited to eat. <laughs> yes.
0: Saying. Oh, it sounds like an experience, which I think that's what food and, and gathering should be. It should be an experience. And you know, even when you speak about kind of how American culture is, it's one dish and it's very fast. You know, yeah. I, when I went to Europe, any time I've gone basically out of the United States, the, it, the dining experience was exactly that. Like I said, it was an experience. And I, yeah. and I do wish that that's something that we would adapt in America. But everybody's just so on the go. and <laughs> They don't yeah. take the time to really enjoy it. Yeah, yeah. Totally. So let's talk about your TikTok. You know, okay. a lot of TikTokers that are chefs, they do just the regular cooking, showing the beautiful food, but you've decided to combine, you know, musings and storytellings, which I love, and it makes it very engaging. Why did you decide to kind of go that route with your videos?
1: Yeah, so that's a little bit of a, uh, a longer explanation. I started incorporating stories about my family in 2017 in all of my social media at the time, largely on Facebook and Instagram. And I did that very deliberately. I was... um, You know, not not to be dramatic, but I was so traumatized by the 2016 election Mm. and what that revealed to me about Mm. my country. Mm -hmm. I realize now is incredibly naive. And again, you know, some of that was I'm American and and just being so proud of being American and not realizing, my God, there are so many people who do not understand me who don't yeah. understand my role in this country. And that hurt me so deeply.
0: Or appreciate it.
1: Yeah. Or the roles of my parents yeah.
0: and what they
1: did to become American citizens. Yeah. And that that was such a betrayal to me. And I didn't know how to deal with it. It took a really long time for me to even process that, wow, this country is is maybe not the country I thought. I had been living in my whole life Mm. and so you know I could just become very bitter and cynical and just be like you know what F that. I don't, I don't care. I'm, I'm just not going to participate anymore. But that's just so not my personality. And I was like, all right, well, then what are you going to do about it? You're just going to sit there and cry and complain all day? No, you got to do something about it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm a lawyer, so I was like, well, maybe I should do something with that. Like, should I start taking on more pro bono cases or, you know, start representing uh, immigrants who are being threatened to be deported because they were Muslim mm-hmm. Americans or something like that? And I was like, I don't know if that's really the thing that I'm supposed to be doing. And I was like, well, I had this Instagram account, which I think had probably like 7,000 followers at the time. And I was like, but it's still something, you know, maybe some of these followers, they could stand to hear a little bit about my family and what it's like to be, um, you know, an immigrant family in the United States, especially right now. So I started writing captions that incorporated stories about my mom and my dad and me, um, what it was like growing up not speaking English as my first language or eating the wrong food and things like that. And, you know, it wasn't a hostile reaction that I got. So I just kept doing that. And by the time I started my TikTok last summer, it became sort of a trademark of the Korean vegan Instagram account is that every three or four posts, instead of seeing a recipe, you would see a story about my family. So when I started my TikTok account, at first I had no idea what I was doing. I didn't know what it was going to be. i didn't Nobody
0: think- did when they started. You
1: know, oh my god! <laughs> it was like complete chaos when you get on there. You're like what? Right. Like what am I seeing right now? Right, right. <laughs> um, But you know, once I got a little acclimated and I ultimately decided to do food content, which itself was a journey because I didn't think I would. Um, I was like, well, why not just do the same thing I'm doing on Instagram? Why not just incorporate kind of like you said, my musings and my stories, only I would have to do it in 60 seconds or less. And I would have to use my voice instead of words. And that's ultimately why the Korean Vegan is what it is today.
0: Yeah, it's beautiful. I really, really enjoy what you're doing because it is unique. You don't really get to see that too often. And I I think that you present food in a way that shows how much it means to you. And I think that people love that authenticity. And I think that's why you have so many followers because it's just, it's authentic, it's organic, and it's real. So I love what you're doing. But now you have an upcoming cookbook. So let's talk about that. You know, in reading it, it doesn't even feel like a cookbook. It also feels like it's kind of half of a memoir, which I love as well. Um, what do you want people to feel, you know, once they finish reading? reading that, or even trying some of your recipes?
1: Oh, that's such a good question. I want people to feel inspired, and I also want them to feel moved. I, I want them to kind of drop into my world a little bit. That's really what I wanted to do was to... You know, when I wrote wrote the first sentence of the introduction, I wanted them to feel like they were sitting at the table with me and my Mm -hmm. parents, my grandma, and my brother. They could hear my dad slurping up the jjigae, they could hear my grandmother, you know, pitter-pattering around the kitchen while she brought the, you know, kenyip to the table. And, you know, they could see my mom, you know, and her sort of frail elegance, you know, picking up a mung bean. I wanted all of that to be so accessible to the Mm. reader and to be taken away and transported a little bit into my world show them mostly that life is hard life is full of struggle and pain and there will be moments where you are questioning whether or not survival is even possible but in all of it it can still be beautiful and rendered joyous. That's what I want people to feel about, not just my life and, and the lives of my family, but also their own.
0: Yeah. You know, in connecting with your your fans and your followers on social media, have you found that any anybody's perspectives or relationship with food has been altered because of the content that you've shared?
1: Mm, I like to think so, but I'm also very like, I don't want my head to get too big, you know, I I mean, so many people are like, oh my God, I'm going to go vegan because of you, or I've been plant-based for the past month because of you, or, um, you know, I'm going to eat this ice cream, even though I am usually counting calories because of you or Mm -hmm. something like that. And, Of course, those things make me so happy and they make me feel like I'm doing something bigger than me, you know, bigger than the Korean vegan. I've been struggling a lot over the past kind of couple of months. Like, what do I even call this? Like, it's it it feels like, you know. It's not just a food blog. It's a community now where people are helping each other and leaning on each other, not just me, you know. And I Mm -hmm. find that so beautiful. Um, But, yeah, I I certainly get messages all the time saying, hey, I've been re-inspired or reinvigorated to go plant-based because of you. Or I'm going to cut out, you know, the meat and replace it with Beyond Meat or Impossible Meat or some other tofu or cauliflower because of you. And that always makes me so happy. It's it's my mission with the Korean vegan is not explicitly turn everyone vegan my mission is compassion Hmm. that in the broadest sense I want people to be compassionate on all levels including in their dietary choices
0: yeah is there a recipe in your book that took you the longest to to figure out how to veganize
1: Oh, yeah, I would say the most complicated recipe is the one that looks the most delicious.
0: It's the, <laughs> um, it's the
1: kampungi, which is um, it's a chicken wing. And um, so I have my most popular recipe on the blog is kampung tofu, which is a tofu version of that. And that's very simple. You just kind of dice up the tofu and you cook it the same pretty much the same way but I wanted to create a version that literally you pick up a wing and you eat the, you know you eat it like a wing and it was an homage to my grandmother my way harmony You know, she loved wings. And, you know, my grandmother, she was so poor. for so much of her life, the majority of her life, she was just so poor. So when we brought her to the United States, you know, the concept of an all-you-can-eat buffet was just like, are you kidding me? Like (laughs) That was like, what are you talking about? I can eat as much as I want. And we would take her to Ponderosa all the time when we were little. She would always get plate after plate of chicken wings. Like that was just like her thing. And I remembered that all throughout my life, even you know, long after she had passed away. So when I created this cookbook, I wanted to create a dish kind of, you know, in memory of her. And kampungi was kind of like the perfect way to do that. But oh, my God, Melinda. Oh, there was a lot of testing. Involved <laughs> <that one>. oh. <laughs> I, like, I don't
0: know if this is going to work out. But you mastered it. You figured it out.
1: I did. And it turned out so perfectly. Um, My husband was
0: like, I don't know if you should give this one away. (laughs) (laughs) Keep some of the secrets locked up in the vault. (laughs) Um, What would you say to someone that does want to kind of inch their way into a plant-based lifestyle, but they're just, they don't know where to start?
1: Well, I think the way to start really is setting up goals for yourself that are pretty easy to attain because I think whenever you're trying to make any transition in your life whether it's by choice or whether it's sort of foisted upon you I think the most important component of actually creating change is confidence If you do not have confidence or if you're not making those changes with confidence, very difficult to make them stick because what will happen is you'll fail Mm -hmm. and all of a sudden your confidence will be shaken and you'll be like, what's the point of even trying? I'm never going to be able to do this. So I always feel like in order to build confidence in those early days, set yourself very, very small, easily attainable goals. And what's easy and what's small for one person is totally different for another person right so for me i was like hey look i know i can cut out meat for two weeks no problem i'm not that tied to meat i wasn't really like that into it to begin with so i was like i can do it for two weeks and that was my small goal for somebody else it might be like you know what i'm going to cut out meat on mondays for two weeks see it two times you know see how that works or I'm going to drink, you know, almond milk instead of regular milk for the month and see how that works. So I think identify sort of small goals and you don't even have to have more than one. It could just be one small goal for a set period of time and build upon that. It's much easier to do it that way than to try and say, I'm just going to go vegan tomorrow. I think that that You know, again, for some people that might work, but for a lot of people, I think it's unrealistic and what Mm -hmm. it does, sets yourself up for failure and the concomitant lack of confidence that makes things so much more difficult than they need to be
0: yeah sound advice well Joanne it has been a pleasure getting to know you and hearing more of your story can you let my listeners know where they can follow you and when your cookbook comes out
1: absolutely Melinda so uh, you can follow me at the Korean Vegan that's all one word on basically all social media platforms as well as on the internet the Korean Vegan and my cookbook called the Korean Vegan Cookbook will be coming out on October 12th this year and I'm so so excited about it and incredibly grateful to you Melinda for having me on the podcast
0: of course thank you so much for sharing your story with us and to the listeners make sure you subscribe and we'll talk to you again real soon bye